This morning we are continuing with the story of Joseph, which we started last week. And when we last left Joseph, he had been left in a pit and then picked up and sold into slavery by 10 of his 11 older brothers. And he was on his way to Egypt. We pick up the story in Genesis chapter 39. Now Joseph was taken down to Egypt, and Potiphar, an official of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard, an Egyptian, bought him from the Ishmaelites who brought him down there. The Lord was with Joseph, and he became a very successful man. He was in the house of his Egyptian master. His master saw that the Lord was with him, and that the Lord caused all that he did to prosper. So Joseph found favor in his sight and attended him. He made him overseer of the house and put him in charge of all that he had. From the time he was made the overseer in his house and over all that he had, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake. The blessing of the Lord was on all that he had in house and in field. So he left all that he had in Joseph's charge. And with him there, he had no concern for anything but the food that he ate. Now, Joseph was handsome and good-looking. And after a time, his master's wife cast her eyes on Joseph and said, Lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Look, with me here, my master has no concern about anything in the house, and he has put everything that he has in my hand. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great wickedness and sin against God? And although she spoke to Joseph day after day, he would not consent to be with her. One day, however, when he went into the house to do his work, while no one else was there, she caught hold of his garment, saying, Lie with me. But he left his garment in her hand and fled and ran outside. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled, she called out to the members of the household, saying to them, See, my husband has brought among us a Hebrew to insult us. He came in to lie with me, and I cried out with a loud voice. And when he heard me raise my voice, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. Then she kept his garment until his master came home. And she told him the same story saying, The Hebrew servant whom you have brought among us came in to insult me. But as soon as I raised my voice and cried out, he left his garment beside me and fled outside. When his master heard the words that his wife spoke to him, saying, This is the way your servant treated me, he became enraged. And Joseph's master took him and put him into the prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he remained there in prison. But the Lord was with Joseph and showed him steadfast love. He gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's care all of the prisoners who were in the prison. And whatever was done there, he was the one who did it. The chief jailer paid no heed to anything that was in Joseph's care, because the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made prosper. Now, sometime after this, the cupbearer of the king of Egypt and the baker offended their lord, the king of Egypt. Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and so he put them in custody in the house of the captain of the guard, in the very prison where Joseph was also confined. The captain of the guard charged Joseph with them, and he waited on them, and they continued for some time in this custody. One night, they both dreamed the cupbearer and the baker of the king of Egypt, 
that while they were confined in the prison, each his own dream, each a dream with its own meaning. When Joseph came to them in the morning, he saw that they were troubled. So he asked Pharaoh's officers, who were with him in the custody of his master's house, why are your faces downcast today? And they said to him, we have had dreams and there is no one to interpret them. Joseph said to them, don't interpretations belong to God? Please tell me, tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told his dream to Joseph and said to him, in my dream, there was a vine before me and on the vine, there were three branches. As soon as it budded, the blossoms came out and the clusters ripened into grapes. Pharaoh's cup was in my hand. I took the grapes and I pressed them into the cup and then I placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. Joseph said to him, this is its interpretation. The three branches are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh's will, Pharaoh will lift up your head and restore you to your office, and you shall place Pharaoh's cup in his hand, just as you used to do when you were his cupbearer. But please remember me when you go. Please do me the kindness to make mention of me to Pharaoh, and so get me out of this place. For in fact, I was stolen out of the land of the Hebrews, and here also I have done nothing that they should place me in this dungeon." When the chief baker saw that the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. There were three cake baskets on my head, and in the uppermost basket there were all sorts of fresh baked goods for Pharaoh. But the birds were eating it out of the basket on my head. And Joseph answered, This is the interpretation. The three baskets are three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift up your head from you and then hang you on a pole and the birds will eat the flesh from you. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up the head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the head baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his cupbearing, and he placed the cup in Pharaoh's hand. But the chief baker he hanged, just as Joseph had interpreted to them. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Um, in 1937, uh, toward the beginning of World War II, when the Japanese invaded China, they would go into urban areas and they would round up American and British and Australian and Canadian and other non-Chinese citizens, and they would corral them into concentration camps. You can see maps of these little camps sort of sprinkled all over Western China, or Eastern China. The camps were terrible and brutal places to live. The people there were in near starvation conditions. They were surrounded by barbed wire and vicious dogs and Japanese soldiers. And news of massacres and atrocities that were happening across China, like uh, for instance, the well-known massacre in Nanking, that news would trickle into these camps. And the people lived in fear that one day the Japanese army would come and they would be that next news story of a terrible killing. It was an anxious and a frightening time for these expats living in China. Now one of these camps was known as Wei Shen, and when the Japanese invaded this area, they came across a boarding school, and the boarding school was populated with the children of missionaries, again, predominantly American, British, Australian, and Canadian kids. So this school, all of its students and its teachers, was rounded up and they were moved into the Wei Shen camp. But the teachers, it turned out, had a little bit of foresight, and so they brought with them 
books and school supplies, and they gathered up all of the brownie and girl guide uniforms that they had at the school. Here in the States, we have Girl Scouts, but in Canada and the UK and around the world, they're known as Girl Guides. So they gathered up all these uniforms, and they took them with them to the Weishen camp. Now, these children were in an enemy prison camp far away from their parents in a foreign country, left with their teachers. And we know about their story today thanks to the logbooks kept by the brown owls, which is what a leader of a Girl Guide troop is known as. And these are the logbooks of the Girl Guide troop of the Weishen concentration camp. Now, each day, the brown owls would lead their troop of students through all of the typical activities you would expect of a scouting troop. The girls worked to earn their merit badges to sew onto their little green sashes. They participated in schoolwork and camp chores. They sang songs. They put on talent shows for the other prisoners there. On Christmas Day, there's an entry in the logbook saying that the, saying that the girls got up to sing a song, and their song goes, we might have been shipped to Timbuktu. We might have been shipped to Kalamazoo. It's not repatriation. It's not yet starvation. It's simply concentration in Chifu, which was another name for their camp. The brown owls had found some way to turn the work of living in a concentration camp into games and competitions for these little girls. They would form teams who would race to collect the coal dust left over from the actual coal bricks used by the Japanese captors. And the girls would race to mix the dust with uh, the coal dust with dirt and with water and compact it into little bricks, which they would then burn in their own potbelly stoves. They would have competitions to see who could get their stove burning red hot fastest. It's this sort of bizarre and macabre story. I mean, the picture is really jarring when you think about it. We can picture this troop of these girls in their little smart green uniforms and caps racing each other to form bricks of coal dust so that the end result would be that at least for one night, they're not going to die of exposure and hypothermia. It's insane and it's sad and it's beautiful all at once. It's a sort of conflicting story. Now, years after the camp was liberated in 1945, one of these girl guides, her name is Mary Previtt, and she lives in New Jersey, she took it upon herself to look up one of the former brown owl leaders, a woman named Miss Carr. She went and visited her, and she asked Miss Carr how and why the teachers had done what they did, continuing as best they could a usual experience of childhood for these girls in the midst of unbelievable injustice in this camp. And Miss Carr sort of filled in the other half of the story for her. During the days, the brown owls did indeed do their best to keep life as normal and regimented as possible for their girls. They required proper manners. There was this one sweet story where one of the teachers scolded the girls that there are not two sets of manners, one for the princess in Buckingham Palace and one for you in the Weishen concentration camp, as she was slouching too much while eating literally pig slop out of a soap dish because they didn't have real plates and bowls. They took the girls to class. They reminded their girl guides that under the oath, they must each do at least one good deed every single day in the camp. They tried to keep the girls on what was a normal schedule. 
But what Miss Carr filled in was that at night, after the girls had gone to bed, the teachers, the brown owls, would gather together. And together, they would sit and they would pray that when the Japanese army arrived in force, that the death that would be visited upon them would be swift. They would sit and they would pray that their girls would be lined up and shot in the back so they wouldn't have to experience a prolonged death or seeing the others killed. These brown owls, these women who were not much older than the girl guides themselves, they used the ingrained optimism and order of the scouting movement to maintain as best they were possibly able the childhood of these charges in the midst of overwhelming darkness. And what we do know is that from the girls who left this camp, they actually left with a bit of their childhood still intact. They became well-adjusted, happy, fairly normal adults, which is fairly shocking considering where and how they spent their childhood. And this story, when I heard it this week, it, it, in its own way, it really reminded me of where Joseph is in our tale from Genesis today. When we last left Joseph, he had been sold into slavery by his older brothers, marched off into the foreign land of Egypt, where he was bought by Potiphar, the captain of Pharaoh's guard. Now, while he was enslaved by Potiphar, Joseph found favor. I sort of like to think of Joseph as a little bit of an ancient brown owl of sorts. Joseph is one of those characters that despite whatever circumstance he's in, he's the kind of guy who is going to do the best possible job he can in whatever he's been tasked with. In this case, the combination of Joseph's hard work and the favor of God led to him being promoted to the enviable position of overseer of all of Potiphar's house. It's as respectable a position as a slave or really anyone else could hold at this point in time. But then, as we expect for poor Joseph, things don't go well for very long and disaster strikes. The desperate housewife of Potiphar, after a lengthy and failed seduction, one day she accuses Joseph of assault and he is summarily tossed off into prison, forgotten, left to rot and die. But again, as is Joseph's pattern, he receives the favor of the Lord, he works hard in the circumstance he finds himself in, he dusts himself off, and he does the best he can. The hard work and optimism that he provides leads to him being quickly promoted to overseer of all the prisoners, a sort of brown owl to his own girl guide troop of sorts. He's respected by the prisoners and the guards. Everyone likes Joseph. And then one day Joseph gets his shot at freedom. The cupbearer and the baker of Pharaoh have also been thrown into jail and they start having these haunting and confusing dreams. And so they seek someone to interpret them and then who should be there but Joseph, who has the gift of interpreting dreams. And so Joseph does in fact interpret their dreams for them and then he asks them to remember him when they are brought back into the presence of Pharaoh that they might plead his case and speak on his behalf of this injustice that has been done to him. The dreams, of course, do end up coming true. The baker is hanged and the cupbearer is restored to his position inside Pharaoh's court. But, as we might expect for the very unlucky Joseph, the cupbearer, of course, completely forgets his promise. And injustice is once again heaped upon injustice and Joseph remains in prison serving a term for a crime that he didn't commit at a job that he was sold into 
in a country he didn't choose to enter, sent there, chained up by his very own brothers. And I think in addition to some of the family dysfunction we talked about last week, today's story is another example of why Joseph's story has so much staying power for us thousands of years later. I think we can resonate with this idea that life is at times inherently unfair, and sometimes unfair on a vast and unbelievable scale. Injustices, both slight and also quite significant, are something that we personally experience in our own lives, and we see them happening in the world around us. We know that sometimes good things happen to bad people, completely despite the fact that they're terrible human beings, And we know that quite often bad things happen to very good people for no explicable reason. Joseph's situation, it keeps spiraling downward despite all of his best efforts. The children of missionaries are nearly starved to death in a prisoner camp. The world is full of injustices, and it always has been. But I think this is what we can take from Joseph and from those brown owls that when it comes to injustice, what matters is the resilience that we bring with us to those situations. I think both of these stories are excellent and powerful examples of what the Apostle Paul later tells the church to do, to rejoice in all circumstances. I wonder if a major reason why both Joseph and these prisoners from the Wei Shen camp not only survived, but actually seemed to come out of their experiences with a shred of their own souls and personalities still intact, is because they brought optimism and hard work and kindness and a spirit of gratitude even in the darkest of circumstances. There's something in both of these stories about their lives being kept together because of their own internal joy. Now, this isn't to say that what they did was happy or easy or enviable work because, you know, neither of these two stories is something we would wish upon anyone, quite frankly, even our enemies. This is just not something we want anyone to experience. But the fact is that by sort of putting their heads down and continuing in the situation they had, they not only blessed and improved their own lives, but they actually touched the lives of other people around them in the same circumstance. And I think that's a pretty impressive example of what we might call Christian charity, to live optimistically, with generosity and with kindness towards other people, to uphold our end of a social bargain even if someone else isn't going to uphold their side. We know that injustice exists. We know that life is going to be unfair. But part of our calling as people of faith is to trust in the faithfulness of God for the long term, to trust that God is going to provide us a peace which surpasses our own limited human understanding. And I think that, quite frankly, this is probably one of the hardest callings that can be placed upon us as Christians, especially American Christians. Um, As Americans, we're pretty hardwired to care about what is fair and what is just. We want criminals to be punished for their crimes. We want good citizens to receive their Medal of Honor. But so often, that's just not how things work out. Injustice is a part of our experience. And what Joseph and the brown owls call us into is this invitation that we too can be people of resilience and people of charity, that gratitude and hard work can in fact change if only the little part of the world that we inhabit. 
It's sort of like the next step after Jesus tells us as Christians we're supposed to turn the other cheek when we get struck on one side. After doing that, it's as if Joseph is telling us, then you pick yourself up and you dust yourself off and you go back to the work that God has placed in front of you, no matter how disorienting or unjust it might seem. This isn't, of course, to say that we shouldn't name and fight back against injustice. We should do that. That's part of our calling to say that things are not right in the world and we needed to work for that change. But in the midst of injustice, when we push back against it, I think we're called also to be like Joseph, to be like these brown owls, to live with unexpected compassion and generosity and gratitude toward all the people that we interact with, to love our enemies as difficult as that might be. And so I think that this is who we are called to be in Christian, as Christians in this world, to live unexpected lives that cause difficult and dark situations to end in unexpected and sometimes wonderful ways, to give thanks to God for the challenging and good calling that God has given each one of us. So thanks be to God. Amen.